0: And I do have a uh, Christmas-oriented message that will help us all related to uh, what I gave you last week. Last week I kind of gave you the introduction for it, but I want us to look there. That needs to be, and I think as God's people we need to do what we can do to make sure that 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 doesn't happen. and so here in the Word of God in Philippians chapter two there is a a section the entire chapter actually is on on the topic of unity. I've challenged you to uh, read the book of Philippians it's only four chapters but particularly the first four verses there in Philippians 2. We'll read those in a moment. But to memorize those verses and meditate upon them and ask God to make them a part of your your fabric, the fabric of your heart and your mind, and that the Holy Spirit would have... In fact, it was it was so large that seven o'clock classes to be able to get everybody there. Uh, Jimmy and I graduated from school together. He probably. I remember my my father drove the bus for uh, the football team, and so in the summer to Six Flags uh, over Georgia, he'd say, "You want to go to Six Flags with me on Thursday?" I'd say, "Well, yeah." So me and Dad would go to Six Flags, and just me and him, and go around the park. And, you know, Daddy didn't care about roller coasters, but he loved me. And I have I have such good, fond memories of, of my father and I doing that. So when I came to Butler, I, I knew the coaching staff from, from the years earlier. The head coach was John Meadows. Uh, coach Meadows died around the time... Uh, my mom turned 80, actually uh, my brother and I went to his funeral and then we had a 80th birthday party for my mom that night and we came to my mom's birthday party. But he was one of the greatest high school coaches in Alabama history. Uh, his record in Alabama was 179 wins and 47 losses. And then he coached in Tennessee, and his combined record for Alabama and Tennessee was 266 wins and 76 losses. Three times in the state of Alabama, he was named the Coach of the Year. Two times in the state of Tennessee, he was the Coach of the Year. Coach Meadows is enshrined in the Alabama State Sports Hall of Fame. That's in Montgomery. That's a big deal. That's where uh, major college figures are and NFL folks that have uh, played, Hank Aaron and others, uh, Major League Baseball people that are from Alabama, and he was enshrined there in the Alabama State uh, Sports Hall of Fame, the local Hall of Fame, Madison County Athletic Hall of Fame. He's also in Halls of Fame in Tennessee and then in other places. Uh, he is the only coach that I know of that has won championships, state championships in, in high school football in both Alabama and Tennessee. And when he, he coached, uh, he sent players to major uh, colleges, uh, to top-tier universities, and also to the NFL. I remember I want my father to... Uh, to see Butler play Coleman in 1969. I was on the sidelines, and they had this this back. Uh, his name was Bo, and they gave the uh, the ball to Bo. And I remember I was just awed by his size. He was massive. He looked like an offensive tackle. And uh, we were on the 20, and the first play of the game, they gave the ball to Bo, and he ran 80 yards for a score. And then he went to a major university, and then four years later, he graduated. And then, when the NFL draft came, he was the he was drafted in the first round, the number two pick in the NFL draft, the number two pick in the in the entire draft, drafted by the San Diego Chargers at the time. And he played there at Butler. He played for Coach Meadows. I, I read even when I was preparing this message, we're both said the the person that most influenced his life was was Coach medes. Now, you, you may be wondering, why why are you telling us all this information? Because I'm setting up a principle I'm going to share with you that this man understood how to coach football, not just about football, but how to coach football. My, my sophomore year, we uh, went to the state championship quarterfinal game, and we played there at Legion Field in Birmingham, and we were playing Banks. Now Banks' quarterback was Jeff Rutledge. And Jeff Rutledge went on and, and won the Super Bowl with the uh, New York Giants. And they had some other guys that were NFL players. And they won 8-6. They beat us 8-6. And so we we were knocked out of the finished fourth in the state that year. My senior year, was Coach Meadows, first, listen to this, his first losing season. It was his 25th year of coaching. It was his first losing season. And then after that, he coached at Butler for two more years. And then he left after the seventy-seven season. And then he went up to Tennessee uh, in Fayetteville, and he began to coach there. In Fayetteville and um and then coached there for a long time after that. My senior year was not only the first losing season he had in the first twenty-five years, in all of his career. My senior class was the first losing season that coach ever had. I remember uh our homecoming game at Milton Frank. We were playing Athens. Athens won the state championship that year. Athens had a a running back linebacker. He played both sides. Uh, His name was Freddie Smith. Now, this may not mean anything to you unless you know a lot about football. Uh, Freddie Smith was All-State, All-American, everything else. Freddie went on to play later for the Minnesota Vikings, and Freddie signed with Auburn. Now, this was in, he graduated from Auburn in 1980. So this is 43 years later, 2023. Freddie Smith leads, to this day, leads Auburn in tackles, 500 and some odd tackles. I was reading the record book the other day, just interest. One game, he had 22 tackles. Another game, he had 26. Another game, he had 24. Again, you may not say, well, is that good? Yeah, that's good. And nobody's come close to his record of breaking that. in all of these years, and he was on the other side of the ball. They destroyed us, 42 to 14. We were the largest school in this state. They weren't even in our division. We were four. We were, uh, they had four classifications. Now they have six or seven. I forget what they have now. We were at the top of the division. And they were like three. They had less students. First losing season. Years later I knew the coaches because of my father and, and um and I would talk to them about that year and they were so frustrated because they couldn't get the potential out of them. I remember I had separated my shoulder my junior year and I was sitting in with another guy that had been injured for a little bit and uh he pointed to a car, he was a close friend of mine, and he said, You you see that car, we were looking out the field house at the door. I said, Yeah. He said, Do you know why it's, it's sitting low to the ground? I said, No, because the guy the car belong, the car belonged to was a, a very, very close friend of mine, Celia's. He said, Do you know why? I said, No. He said, Because it's filled with marijuana. I said no, it's not. He said, "Yeah, it is. It's filled with marijuana." And my coaches told me uh, decades later, they said, "You know that team had my senior year had so much talent. Had so much talent, but he said a lot of the guys were on drugs." They said, "You know, all the coaches. We'd look out there and we'd see during practice and even in the games, the guys get down in their stances and they'd be, they couldn't even get down." stay without shaking or, or moving, they couldn 't stand still because of, uh, because of being high on drugs, and they they couldn 't maximize what we weren 't giving. There was a lack of unity, there was a lack of camaraderie, there was no clear leadership and I know I remember this the team was splintered into small groups of divided loyalties. I just wondered, you know, I don't know for sure, Coach Meadows, if he left after two years. He did take him to the playoffs another year after he left. But I just wonder if he just felt like, I'd rather go to a smaller community. And he did. He won another championship up there. Listen, uh, when a team, a group, a church, a family, a company, an office, loses its focus, it loses its unity, It affects the mission. It affects the people in the office. It affects the people in the church. But it also affects the leaders. It affects the leaders, the coaches, the parents. When children don't get along, when churches don't get along, it affects the pastors. When the employees don't get along, it affects the the organizational leaders. I've quoted this a number of times over over time. A group in disunity will implode, not explode, it will implode. It falls in on itself. It's always from within. Just just it's it's almost like death by a thousand cuts. Usually nothing big, you know. the The proverb it's the straw that breaks the camel's that breaks the camel's back. A straw a straw can't do that. It's not the weight of the straw. Just you know, one one thousandth of a of a ounce. It's all that goes before it, and then that one little thing. What what happened? What happened there? It wasn't the straw. It's all that went before it. All that weight. And all of that stuff that just saps leaders. Jesus said in Mark chapter 3 and verse 25, Abraham Lincoln quoted it in his speech, but Jesus said it. Jesus said, if a house be divided against itself, that house, that house cannot stand. The word divided means to be separated into pieces, into factions. That house, that house, that church, that home, that company, that office, that team. We, we had potential. And we should have won. But there was no cohesiveness. Everybody was out for themselves. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15, If you bite and devour one another... Take heed, pay attention, be careful, that ye be not consumed one of another. Now, he's using a a picture here, the biting and devouring, the eating is not literal, of course. But here's what he's saying, is you're you're destroying one another, you're devouring, you're eating one another, you're biting one another through your words and your attitude. Do this in a home. You just you just destroy each other, and, and and you don't do it corporately. You do it individually. Look at the scripture again. If you bite and devour one another, well, it's just I just have trouble with this with this brother. I just I don't like this parent. Well, there's just this one person in the church. If you bite and devour one another. Take heed! Look at it that you be not consumed one of another. It's an implosion, not an explosion. It's like brick by brick, but it's not. It's not from without. It's from within. It's just total destruction. The word "consume" there means utter, total destruction. But it comes from within. This is a spirit of God warning us. God, pla- listen. God places a premium. Oh, unity, the root of unity is you one. One. one, one, one heart, one mission, one focus. And it's not just unity for its own sake. You you cannot force unity. The team that I was on in, in, in school, it wasn't when Jim and I played for Stone in Junior High. We, we loved that. We still stay in touch with it. That was totally different. You know, we, we weren't great. In fact, that was the first team, that stone team that we played, was the first one that ever made the playoffs in junior high. What we called middle school was junior high back then. But we, we weren't terrific, but we, we had one heart. We loved each other. We loved practice. We just loved spending time with each other. It, and here's the thing. I've already mentioned this. It wasn't organizational unity. Okay, now y'all get along. You know, it's like having your children, you know, lecturing. Now y'all get along. Or pastor telling the people. Now you, you need to have unity. That's organizational unity. You cannot impose that. You cannot legislate that. It's folly. It must be organic. It's a result of life. It's born of love. That means that I will, I will be patient. It means that I will die to my preferences, I will die to myself, that I will be tolerant. Listen, if you want someone's assets, you have to tolerate their liabilities. We don't want that. We, we, want, their, we want their assets without liabilities. We don't get that. When you get married, you're marrying someone with liabilities. Duh. Both of you. And if you focus on the liabilities, you're never going to be happy. I remember I sinned against my wife early in our marriage by by trying to change her into my image. I was so wrong. And, And the Spirit of God spoke to me one day and said, why are you doing that? She's a woman. She takes a long time to get ready. She's beautiful. Do you want her to be that way? Leave her alone. And I had to change. And I, by the grace of God, I think I did change. If you want someone's assets, you have to tolerate what you perceive, maybe. Your perception may be wrong, a liability, but sometimes it may be a liability. None of us in here are perfect. Chief among us, me. And if you're looking perfect, For perfection to have unity, you're never going to have it. Your wife is not going to have it. Your husband, your kids, your parents, your fellow churchmen, nobody's going to have it. The book of Acts is 28 chapters. 28 chapters. Twelve times in those 28 chapters, the expression, in one accord, is used. They were in one accord, in one accord, in one accord. The words one accord mean to have one mind, to be unanimous. Now, that doesn't mean they were all alike. Paul and Barnabas had had a difference of opinion. But it, it means to, to have their thoughts and their hearts in the same direction. They, they were channeled, submitted toward the Lord Jesus Christ in his mission. Listen, only the Holy Spirit of God can do this. You can't do it for yourself because you're so selfish. I'm so selfish If I don't have God helping me and in me, without Him I can do nothing. Without Him we can do nothing. We're so selfish. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, said this. Listen to this. Discord and division are becoming to no Christian. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another lamb, this is unnatural and monstrous. That's quite a statement. Just to bother each other and trouble each other. Let's read the passage and let me make some application here. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. We studied these words, I'll not rehearse them again. If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, these words are are fundamental, they're essential to unity. Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded. Notice the commonality, the same love, one accord, one mind. You have to have these things, you have to be these things. Let nothing, nothing be done through strife. Or vainglory. By the way, strife comes from vainglory or selfishness. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And this is a summary verse. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So a church in unity, a church in unity is a blessing to each other. But a church in unity is also a, a blessing to her leaders. Now, there's one benefit from unity in this text, and then there's one that's related to it. I just want to deal with the one in the text like I did last week, but I want to finish it today. And here it is. Number one, unity benefits the leader. Now, this is a broad application. He has a pastoral application here. But unity benefits a leader. And some of you right now, you're not a leader and you're under a leader and you say, yeah, but you don't know him. One one day you're going to be up there. And people are going to be saying about you, yeah, but you don't know her, you don't know him. Unity benefits the leader. I want you to notice in verse 2. In the middle of all of this about unity, Paul says, fulfill ye my joy. And he talks to them about his personal joy and their relationship to him regarding joy. He's telling them, fulfill ye my joy in the context of being together in unity. There's no way around it that, that when, when you are unified, you affect your leader's joy. And one of the themes of the book of Philippians is joy. If you want to get happy, uh, read, read Philippians. Four chapters, 18 times, do the math. Over four times each chapter. 18 times in four chapters, the word joy, rejoicing, rejoice, one of those derivatives is used. And so here in verse 1, he's not talking about their joy. Paul's talking about his joy. Here's what he's saying. You have the ability not to give me joy, but to influence the degree of my joy. That's what he says. And and he pleads with them. He says, fulfill my joy. Now, there is a, a, a fullness of joy. There are degrees of joy. First of all, there... We, we get this fullness of joy when we walk with God. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 16 and 11. David said, Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence. He's speaking to God. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, which is the place of honor, the place of privilege we are his sons and daughters their pleasures evermore and that's not speaking of heaven in heaven it's magnified that's in this life i can be in god's presence when i worship him when i walk with him they're going to be fullness of joy and i couldn't help but thinking some of you may have loved ones and or friends that this is their first christmas or maybe you're missing them this season if they're with jesus listen This fullness of joy is magnified, man. Whatever joy you have is magnified to the to the millionth degree or or billionth or whatever number you can't imagine. To the fullness of joy, man, they wouldn't come back if they could. But not only is there a fullness of joy in the presence of God, there, there is a fullness of joy that comes from being in one accord. But this fullness of joy is not one that you experience, it's one that your authority experiences. Now parents understand this that when their kids get along they're happy. Somebody said one time that you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. Now that's only partially true because you can still be happy. But it does it does affect, it does affect your joy to some degree. If you're human. But as a pastor, when when people are quibbling and they're quarreling, and there's a negativity. And all they see are are the downsides. It it, it eats at you. Because you can't fix everything. And and Paul had trouble here. He talks about these ladies in chapter 4. And he, he tells them, he said, you need to get on the same page here. And he says, fulfill my joy. And, and he's not complaining. He, 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 I think he says it in a tender way with a tear in his eye. Fulfill my joy. The word fulfill there in verse 2 means to to level out a hollow place. It means like you have a basket and, and you're filling it up with fish or, or rice or corn and there's still some more. You, you fill it up till it, there's no more. You can't put any more in it. In fact, it, it's spilling over. You've heard this said before. My cup of joy was filled and overflowing. That's what, That's the ideal here. Fulfill or fill full. Fill full, fulfill my joy. You have the capacity to do that. You also have the capacity where I can have joy, but there's a disappointment. And those of you that are leaders, you understand this. Paul said this to them because he, he loved them. Not This was not a legal top-down, now, okay, you need to make me happy because I'm a selfish man. No, he loved them. This was a very heartfelt request not a command if you look in your bible just one page over philippians chapter one in verse three would you look at this philippians 1 3 and he says i thank my god upon every remembrance of you you know what he said when when i think when i think about you i'm thankful Uh, my heart just swells when i think of the whole church there my heart's just full of gratitude when I think about you. Always in every prayer, when I pray for you, all make, look at this, making request with joy. You see that? A deep joy. See the joy? I already have joy, but fulfill my joy. And I think it relates to chapter four, when those two ladies weren't getting along. He says, I... My joy is not full because you guys aren't getting along. Come on, kids, get along. Come on, employees. Come on, church. Come on, team. Put aside your selfish desires. Look at chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. I want you to note these tender expressions of this man of God. Philippians 4, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, now notice this. Let's go slow here. My brethren, dearly beloved. He didn't have to put that in there, but he did. Dearly beloved, longed for. Has had, I, I, I yearn for you. I miss you. I miss you. I'm in prison. I love you. Look at the, my joy. There it is again. You know, who is his joy? It's these people. My joy, my crown, one day in heaven, I will, I will get receive a crown because of my relationship with you, my ministry with you. So stand fast in the Lord. And then he repeats it, my dearly beloved. He has such a high regard and love for them that it brought joy to him. Can you imagine? That these friends, these loved ones, when there's quarreling and feuding and conflict, what it did to his heart. May I say some of you are, are at war with your parents. And I, I, don't, I have nobody in mind. I'm just saying this because I think God wants me to say it. And you're breaking their hearts. You ought to, you ought to cease the war. You ought to repent, and go to them and repent. you say, "Well, yeah, but but it's their fault. Well you if it's if 10 it's percent, your fault cover your 10 percent. and don't say, "But I did this because no, you cover your 10 percent, so I was wrong. You let God deal with them, but you cover yours. You'll never have a clear conscience until you do and, and it'll be a beautiful thing in your life. Some of you adult children, some of you teenagers are ungrateful, and you've affected your parents. If you're not right with your parents, you're not right with God. And and this principle, when Paul says, fulfill you, my joy, it's in a pastoral context, but the principle is broader. It's an authority issue. Paul's joy wasn't. Listen to this. It wasn't seeing a plan come together. I've known people in the ministry where they just. Well, I just love the ministry because I love to organize things and and then think, boy, it wasn't that neat. No, his delight was the people. Well, that the plan didn't come together. This, no, no, no. You're missing it. He loved the people. I've known guys before that said, "Well, I really love to preach." Well, well, the question is, do you love the people to whom you preach? Because they can tell. Do you care about them? Nobody cares how much you know till they know how much you care. They're really not interested in your sermon. They're interested in your heart. Do you have joy in them? Do you, like, like he said, do you thank God upon remembering them? Do you delight in them? Do you love them? Jesus died for people. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, if there's any consolation in Christ, the comfort of love, a fellowship of the Spirit. All, all of these things, these qualities, are they come from God. And when you see God working, in, a pastor sees God working in his people, it's not about a plan coming together. It's, God, there's life here. This is not an organization. This is an organism. This is This is life here. And you see life in your children and you see see humility in the people you're working with. I'm telling you, boy, it doesn't get any better than that. Leadership drains your joy. It has unique trials. I wrote down a couple of reasons here. Number one, leadership has a level of spiritual warfare, especially spiritual leadership. But all leadership includes spiritual warfare. All leadership. Satan always attacks those that are in authority. Always. Now, here's the thing: is that people are unaware of this unless they're involved in it. The higher you go in authority, the more you experience spiritual warfare. I think it was one of the Puritans that said this: New levels, new devils, and really stronger devils. There are stronger temptations, so leadership and especially spiritual leadership includes spiritual warfare. Paul said, "I'm not fighting flesh and blood. My problem's not people. I'm fighting the enemy, and the enemy always attacks authority. He attacks fathers and mothers. He attacks governmental authority. And and the more intentional he is, he's seeking out people." That are walking with God. And they have a target on their back. You know, it's easy to complain about your parents. Pray for your parents. It's easy, easy to complain about your boss. Pray for your boss. It's easy to complain about your pastor. Pray for your pastor. There, there is a satanic opposition that you do not know about until you become an authority, and I'll tell you what: some people don't even know that that, that it's a warfare. I mean, you're, you're you're faring in war. This is not a playground; it's serious. Satan wants your children. He wants this church. He wants to destroy your business if you're trying to glorify God with it. When Paul was ministering, there were people that were trying to mimic his ministry when he was casting out demons and so forth. And so uh, these guys wanted to do what he was doing. And uh, one of the demons spoke out loud to this man that was trying to mimic Paul. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 15, And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know, but who are who are ye? Who are you? I mean, whoa. Satan knows who's assaulting his kingdom. He knows who the authorities are because the the authorities, God God puts authorities in place for good or bad, and he can use them to. Bring judgment on us. And I think some people, we think, well, the devil's after me. No, the devil doesn't bother you. Your flesh has got you all messed up. But there is a warfare. And some of you leaders that I'm talking to now, you're under that warfare. And you need to put your armor on and suit up. And those that are need to pray for your grandparents and pray for leaders. Paul had a prayer, this is an interesting prayer request, and and all of these are in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2. He said, finally, brethren, pray for us. That's, That's a powerful line, pray for us. But what does he say? That the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. What does that mean, free course? It means to run without interference, and why did he say that? Because there had been times that he'd been preaching and witnessing when the Word of God did not have free course. And the Word of God is powerful. Will Satan try to keep me from preaching and trouble my mind or distract me or cause trouble in an auditorium? Well, Absolutely. I've been in services before when I can, with a friend and he will be struggling. And I'll just say, God, God, help him, help his mind. Because I've been there. help his mind get back to, I don't criticize him. It's spiritual warfare. Or maybe a baby will start crying and nobody can listen. Nobody can hear. And I said, God, help the baby. Help the baby be quiet. Help the parents to understand what's happening and to take the child out. May the Word of God have free course. That's an interesting request. Look at the second verse. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. He says these lost people, these wicked people, were affecting us. They were troubling us. One day I came out years ago and I... I, we had a conversion van to take our family. It wouldn't start. I had trouble with it, and I finally got it down. It was really rough. I finally got it down to a, a place that looked at it, and the guy said, "You got sand in your, in your gas tank." and it's gotten in the transmission. And we, we lost our van. Our neighbor who had put satanic things on our porch for two or three weeks. I remember one Sunday, on Sunday mornings, I remember one, one day Jeremiah said, Dad, there's something on the porch. And the police department at the time had a unit that was investigating that. And I called the man, I knew him, and I took it down there and he came outside. He said, don't bring it in, I'll come out and look at it. He said, this is this is related to this and then the next week it happened and then i believe with all of my heart that he put and then one day we came out there and red red paint it said red rum that's murder backwards So, why is he bother? We've never done anything to him. Nothing. Because there's opposition. There's mornings when I wake up on Sunday mornings, and it hasn't happened in a while, when I cannot focus on the sermon. And this free course thing, I, I can't even have free course to study. For thirty or forty minutes, I'm battling, and I'll tell Paula when she'll come. Say you need to pray for me this morning. You have no idea. I'm not asking you to pity me. I don't tell these stories for. Real. I'm just simply saying that it's really easy sometimes. Well, why don't why don't you why don't why don't we? Because there's a lot of spiritual warfare. That's Paul's prayer. What about Paul's experience in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter two and verse eighteen? Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. This is the same church. Just the first letter, chapter 2 and 18. I would have come to you once and again, more than once, but Satan hindered us. The word hindered there means to impede, has the idea of going ahead of line and cutting someone off or to block so when God sees in this context, a pastor he's making progress or the church is making progress, or it's walking, all of a sudden he, he throws a, a blockade there. Now that could be one of a thousand things, and that affects you. and the enemy the enemy's real. Satan is real. And then you see Paul's need. In First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22, again, he says the same thing he said in First Thessalonians 3, or Second Thessalonians 3, He said, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. This, he ends the book with these words, pray for us. May I say this, that when someone, especially in leadership that, that is spiritually mature, when they just say something like that, hey, pray for me. They may not tell you why, but when they say that, there's a reason why. Pray for me. Pray for me. Paul had faithfully prayed for his churches, for his friends, and the people he had mentored. And just a handful of times in the Bible, he said, pray for me. Pray for me. All all of this warfare. During the Revolutionary War, I'm told that the instructions were for the enemy to... or for the the American revolutionaries when the British came to shoot at the enemy. They said this. They said, now, because, you know, they had to get those balls in. They, they didn't have this repeating rifles like we do. They had to make their first shots count. It took a while. So they said... Wait and shoot at the guys with the brass buttons. Because the brass button guys were officers. Because the Redcoats were notorious about dressing up. And and the guys that really dressed up, they were easy to to pick off. Shoot at the guys with the brass buttons. My soul, if we've got enough sense to do that... Don't you think the enemy looks in a home and sees a father? It says, target the father, target the mother, target the owner of the company, target the manager, target the governor, target the president. Target the pastors, target the leaders, target the life group leaders. But rather than, I gave you these examples here with Paul, rather than praying when something doesn't feel right, we just say, well, something's wrong, we just, you don't get to change your daddy, you got to pray for your dad now when i'm when i'm comfortable i'm going to stop here because of time I have more to say and pick this up at another time i i'll just tell i always tell Paula but sometimes i'll just tell my kids you need to pray for me because they're all adults now you need to pray for your dad, and I believe they do I read a story um there there's kind of a a artificial um, unity that we portray that's not genuine. We pretend like we're in unity, but but we're not. And boy, it came clear. I I actually looked this up. Some of you may have seen this at travel. But I looked the picture up. It was fascinating. And then I I did a little research because I like to read about these things. But uh, the two countries, uh, uh, I, I think, the way they pronounce it in, in Chile, it's Chile, I believe. And I, I had French and not Spanish, so I'm not good with Spanish. In Argentina, uh, but they were at war with each other, and and it was—I mean—they had the troops ready to go. They were about to explode. You know what they were fighting over? The border. They were arguing over the demarcation of the countries. And so finally somebody had an idea that okay, here's what we're going to do is, is they establish and they, they put a little plaque at the bottom like may, may this, this particular statue be destroyed if if a, a war breaks out over the boundaries of the countries. And they built this uh, twenty five foot statue or so of Christ it's called Christ of the Andes this tall statue and they put them put very tall up into mountains where everybody could see it very visible in the Andes mountains and it's a pledge between the two countries between Argentina and also Chile well after they put it up it didn't settle the difference. It did for a while. But then the the Chileans began to protest that they had been slighted. They didn't like it. And they said, the statue has its back turned to Chile. And they said, because of this, this is not right. You, you did that on purpose. And their tempers began to rise. And then all of a sudden... War seemed like it would break out again. Well, an editorial, a newspaper man in Chile, this is a true story, cleverly wrote this in the paper and it settled them down and it put the war off. Here's what he wrote. He said, don't worry about that because, remember, they were upset because the statue, the back of it was towards them and it was honoring Argentina. So the newspaper guy said, the people of Argentina need more watching than the Chileans. And you know what? They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can have peace over that. When I read that, I thought, that's so much like us. Even in our settling for peace, We have to be able to get our peace. P-I-E-C, yeah. And when I read that, I thought, we all need watching. This old boy needs somebody to watch my heart. And you need somebody to watch your heart. I I think that if you would just look inside your heart and say, God, what is in here that is destructive, destructive? that causes division between authority and myself, that causes me to rebel, that is selfish, that has caused me to be disloyal to my parents, that has caused me to break close relationships to my brothers and my sisters. Oh, you have a preacher you don't know? Well, they're not here. I'm talking to you you got 5%, take care of your 5%. And don't go into it and say, well, now, I heard a sermon and and I know, but I'm going to take care of mine. You know, we, got, we both know you did wrong, so I'm sorry. No, that's not it. Say, I'm genuinely sorry. I was so wrong. You let God bring conviction. You do more damage when you're not humble. I want you to pray with me, would you? Let's pray.